The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Well, good morning from P.I.'s Declassified. So the mission of PIs Declassified is to show what private investigators really do compared to the myth that exists on TV and the movies. And to that end, my guest today is Florida private investigator Mark Renan, an expert in investigating sexual abuse um, allegations. A criminal charge of sexual abuse, boy, it has lifelong consequences. There's no question that there are many documented cases of legitimate sexual misconduct between fathers and their children, but there are also those who make false allegations. And it's the job of a good investigator to figure out the difference. So, inner Mark Mernan. Mark will discuss the step-by-step process he uses to get to the facts and to get to the truth. Mark is a certified legal investigator, certified fraud examiner, a former staff investigator for the Southern District of Florida Federal Public Defender's Office. He has over 25 years investigative experience in both the public sector at the uh, public defender's office and the private sector. Mark's agency, Complete Legal Investigations Incorporated, focuses on criminal defense, civil, plaintiff, personal injury investigations. He has written extensively for professional journals, and he's often lectures on investigative procedure. His commitment to improving the perception of private investigators throughout the country is really well known to his colleagues. He's a past regional director for the National Association of Legal Investigators, a member of the National Defense Investigator Association, and is past president of the Florida Association of Licensed Investigators. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the show. Hi, Francie. Good to be with you. Uh, this is exciting. I, I love talking to you, and I know um, you have a passion about the correct way to conduct these kind of ugly cases. Yeah, they are ugly. Well, we've been good friends for a long time, so it's an honor to be on your show. I have one question for you. Yeah? Where did you get Peter Graves back from the grave to do your opening? <laughs> <laughs> that is great. I thought he was, maybe his death is a myth like Morgan Freeman's. Maybe Peter Graves is still alive. <laughs> yeah, he's a great voice, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> he has a great voice. This is your, more, this is your mission, Mr. Phelps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, I love oh, to boy. That. Really And by cool. the way, my mother is listening to this broadcast. And I want to, Mom, <laughs> I just want you to know I did all that stuff Francie just said. <laughs> I am great. that good. <laughs> well, thanks for being on the show, Mark. This is fun. My pleasure. So it's a great uh, you topic. Know, it's a great topic. It's unpleasant, but it's uh, unfortunately it's a reality, isn't it? 
it is a reality, and there are so many ways to make a false claim. So, uh, so I know you came out of the public defender's office. It must be um, a lot different working in the private sector than it is working under a governmental agency. Is that true? Oh yeah, absolutely. I actually, I actually came out of the um, state public defender system. Uh, I was there in the local public defender's office from 1984 to 1990. And then I worked for myself and a couple of attorneys from 90 to 93. And then late 93 through uh, 2001, I was a staff investigator with the Federal Public Defender's Office. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was a great, great experience. Obviously, technically, um, you know, very, uh, it was a great training ground for that. The business end, uh, I think I enjoyed that uh, for a long time. Uh, It was, uh, obviously, as you know, it's different. You're not just the investigator, you're also a business owner, so uh, drumming up business and uh, uh, adequately running a business was a whole different set of skills uh, which uh, needed to be developed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, much different, for sure. Lots of keep, trying to keep all the balls in the air at the same time. <laughs> you, you know, we've had this conversation. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's true. That's but true. it was a great training ground. I worked with great lawyers, and obviously the beauty of the, uh, uh, the, beauty of the public defender system is you're exposed to uh, every conceivable criminal case imaginable. Uh, and I remember when uh, the sex abuse cases started to uh, materialize in uh, the late eight, 1980s, um, they were almost like the crime du jour uh, because of um, uh, many of them were related to uh, divorces and custody cases. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember the first couple of them I just was shocked by, but then I began to sense a pattern that, uh, you know, spouses would become embittered toward each other uh, and then make these claims of uh, physical abuse and even sexual abuse um, in related to custody cases. And uh, we, we, we were deluged with these types of cases. I want to say uh, before I left the public defender's office in 1990 uh, and, and subsequent to that, um, they were just, you know, proliferating. And uh, I think it took several years before uh, the state attorney's office, the prosecutor's office, uh, started forming some type of analysis to screen uh, the uh, cases that were coming in. Mm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, well, you know, kind of as an aside, I'd like to just address for a second, um, there's always a lot of um, disdain directed toward public defender lawyers. And, uh, and they're often, as you know and I know, called dump trucks. Right. And people think that getting a privately retained attorney or paying a lot of money is better than having a public defender. And there are right. really a lot of great attorneys that are public defenders. There are, and I, I've not heard them to refer to as dump trucks. You but haven't? Almost every other negative adjective. I just remember, going, I don't want a PD, I want a real lawyer. Yeah, right. Well, that's the term that we, that we often hear in California is that's the way they're referred to in the, in the jails, in the pretrial jails. The, <laughs> and, and I promise and I'll, keep that, I'll keep that to myself. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's an awful term. So, um, but I just wanted to say that because I think that needs, you know, uh, they don't get the recognition that they really should have because I've, I've known personally attorneys that are, would run circles around many of the ones in the private sector. Well, they have a, I mean, if you're in the public sector, if you're, if you're there as defense, all you're doing is criminal defense. And because of the caseload and the limited budgets, you're often required to do almost miraculous feats with, uh, without a net. Uh, so my admiration for the public defenders that I have worked with 
knowing that there are some bad apples in every batch, but for the sure. most part, diligent, hardworking, committed, um, you know, and committed to their clients. Uh, mm-hmm. I, it's, it's amazing how much that attitude continues with the attorneys, no matter how long they seem to be in office. They genuinely care about their clients. Right. And I actually yep. I find, I find it refreshing to be around them and uh, to be around the uh, younger attorneys, especially as they're coming up and to, uh, to, you know, to, to see their zeal and their passion for their clients. It's still refreshing for me. Oh, that's great. Oh, that's great. I'm glad I brought it up. So, yeah. So talking about these, um, these just allegations from you know, sometimes it's a spouse, sometimes it's actually could be a grandmother or a, a, a sister of the, the uh, mother who's trying to get custody. Other people make these uh, allegations and influence, sometimes influence the children as well, correct? Sure. Yeah, a lot of the a lot of the cases, and, and when I wrote this article, it's, it seems so dated now. I wrote it back in two thousand six. It still amazes me, but uh, a lot of the cases that that we were getting were generated um, by the by the child alleged the alleged victim. Uh-huh. Uh, and in most cases, herself. I'm going to I'm going to refer to the the victim as a female. Uh, and the scenario that I wrote about in this particular article was about uh, uh, daughters or stepdaughters making claims of sexual abuse against uh, the father or stepfather, the residing uh, father stepfather. Sometimes the you know if the father if he was not living at home. Uh-huh. Um, and so that was the that was the case analysis that that I I seem to come across most frequently. And um, this one in particular, this scenario in particular, was troublesome. Uh, after I'd met with the client, I, I wrote this after working a particular case and began educating myself. Um, and frankly, I, none of this stuff that I wrote in the article is original. Uh, I was privileged to hear um, a California investigator, you know him, Harvey Shapiro, Mm-hmm. Uh, came and spoke at a uh, state conference. Uh, the Florida uh, Association of Licensed Investigators uh, came to speak with us in the, uh, or maybe it was the, uh, maybe it was the, uh, uh, I can't remember if it was the, uh, I think it was the Fowley Association. Came to speak with us in the early 2000s, and I kept his, I kept his notes. And when I came across this case in particular, I contacted Harvey, and he was kind enough to share a resource with me. His partner, uh, Carol Palacio, right. also up in Northern California. You know Carol. Yes. I know Carol. She is a wonderful lady, and she yep. actually has a home uh, in Naples, uh, yes. due west of West Palm Beach, where I'm located. Yeah. So it was that time of year, so I uh, called Carol and made an appointment and actually paid her a consulting fee to talk to me about how she and Harvey investigated these cases, and they were just invaluable. And I, I paid for an hour of her time, wrote a check, drove over there with my wife, Wendy, and we sat with Carol and her husband and just spent, and we spent hours. We, we went out to dinner. We had the most wonderful evening. Mm-hmm. But I walked away from that. That was the best investment I ever made. Right. Uh, because it was talking with an experienced abuse investigator about how, how she and Harvey worked these cases. Mm-hmm. So that was a great, that was a great, um, uh, a great uh, lesson for me. Insofar as uh, coming up with, um, you know, a procedure for uh, handling this type of case because they are unique. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And since that time, Mark, do you have any idea how many cases of this type you've handled? Uh, I would, I would say, I would say conservatively, um, fifteen to twenty. Um, they come in various shapes and sizes. Major investigations, probably about one a year. 
where we are investigating cases by a victim who alleges sexual abuse by either a father, uh, a teacher, or someone in uh, authority, pastors. I've done a couple of church-related cases, uh-huh. uh, but about one a year, which involves, you know, hundreds of hours, thousands of dollars, um, dozens of witnesses. They are complicated. They are. And, uh, they are. Yeah, but complicated for a number of perceptions that we'll probably get into in the next segment. Yeah, well, and complicated because just from the start, people believe the person that's making the allegation. If it's a, if it's a child, if it's a girl, yep. say it's a teenage girl, and yep. that's often the case, yep. uh, they believe her right off the top with no reservations. Right. And, and I would goes, say that that was, the, that was the biggest myth that I found. The biggest presupposition, the biggest misconception is that kids don't lie hyphen about sexual abuse. Right. Yeah. Now, now no parent, you've got kids, I've got kids, I, I, all, my, all my kids lied. <laughs> they, they lied about their grades, they lied about their friends, they lied about their activities, they lied about where they were, they lied yeah. about who they were with. Right. They lied about everything, but they didn't lie about sexual abuse. And I, I just, I realized that that was the biggest misconception I had to battle with yeah. for myself. Yeah. I mean, who would make such a horrific claim? But adolescents don't have that kind of filter that we develop later as responsible adults. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mark, we're going to take a, a really quick break. We'll be right back with Mark. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. 
Mark Mirnan is a private investigator from Florida, and he's a specialist investigating sexual abuse claims. So, Mark, when you get a case like this, where do you start? What do you do first, and where do you go from there? Well, the first thing is obviously meeting with the, well, reviewing the discovery. I used the component method that our friend Brad, uh, Brandon Perrin put together. Uh, that was a real help to me in organizing cases and working them methodically. And so Why don't you I just, describe uh, that a little bit, Mark, the component method? Well, the component method is uh, um, a means of breaking down a criminal case to different components, uh, a step-by-step process uh, to carry a case from intake through disposition. Uh, and obviously, we're on the same type of schedule as the attorneys are, but uh, we're doing most of our work in advance. And so the component method for in, in this, for instance, would be uh, examining the discovery, reviewing the file, uh, taking a look at uh, what we call here the probable cause affidavit or the arrest affidavit filed by the investigating officers, uh, outlining the, the facts of the case uh, sufficient to warrant uh, probable cause for the arrest of the, uh, of the defendant. And so that would be the reports, uh, some of the uh, supplementary reports, incident reports, uh, conclusions that there's medical records to take a look at those as well. So once I have a good feel for the case uh, and have spoken to the attorney, then the attorney and I will generally meet with the client. Now, in some of these cases, in a lot of the, the cases that we were working, the clients are actually uh, middle-class guys working in, you know, middle-income neighborhoods, living in, you know, homes and neighborhoods, and they had managed to secure bond. Uh, some of them were uh, court-appointed. Uh, others were uh, private fee cases. Uh, so they were not uh, destitute. Uh, so we, a lot of times we were able to meet them at the attorney's office. I used to meet mm-hmm. when I had an office, I would meet with them at our office as well. Um, or we would meet with them at the jail and just introduce ourselves and review the facts of the case, uh, review the discovery. Um, I wanted to know uh, a lot of these cases are, they're, they're more oriented, I think, they're more oriented toward a social worker mentality uh, than they are towards a um, your straight criminal defense when you're arguing. You're looking for motives, in other words, that aren't necessarily present in your typical criminal case like a robbery or a homicide or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I wanted to get the background for the... Um, uh, for the uh, what the victim and the relationship between the victim and the and the defendant, usually as I said, the father or the stepfather, uh, because the seedbed of these false allegations is the dysfunctional relationship between the father and the daughter. Something's yes. going on. Yes, uh, the father so that has would been. Be, that would be the been, step one. Review the discovery, then yeah. then meet with the client. Yeah. Okay, the father is, it, it typically starts with some kind of an event, either the, um, doesn't it, the father has disciplined the daughter. Correct. Or won't there, let her go out with some there. boyfriend that she wants to go out with. You got it. The, the, yeah. father, is apt, uh, the father is acting as a disruptor. He is in the way of something that the daughter wants. Yeah. And it, it, it's such an interesting dynamic because the cases we had, typically the father's, uh, stepfathers and fathers, there was a bit of a distinction, uh, but typically it was a, a very disciplined household uh, where the father was, um, you know, operating out of a, you know, uh, for want of a better word, a tyrannical position. I'm the father, you're going to do what I say, because that was a common mechanism for dealing with the rebellion being manifested in the adolescent. Mm-hmm. You're going you're to do what I say because I told you to do it. I'm the dad. That's why. 
So these dysfunctional relationships manifested themselves in uh, the laid the seedbed for what would later become these claims. And typically, there was a boyfriend involved, and the father wasn't going to have any of it. Right. And it was a little disconcerting to me because I've had I've had um, I've had daughter. I have a daughter, a beautiful. I love her to pieces. Uh, and I've had step I've had stepchildren. Uh-huh. Um, and it definitely working these cases definitely impacted. Um, the relationships I had both with my children and with my stepchildren, because obviously I'd gone through a couple of divorces and I was you know, familiar of what could be happening there, so I was always very guarded. Uh, but there was something the father had done and the, the daughter in these cases that I was encountering wanted to remove him from her life. That was the sole objective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, a, a teenager doesn't have the worldview of what's going to happen, what's going to, what are the results going to be of this allegation. They have no, no. idea that it, it's going to go get involved in court and testimony and affecting somebody the rest of their lives and affecting the relationship the rest of their lives. They don't have that perspective at all. Not, they're, they're clueless. Right. And, and that's, that's age and immaturity, obviously. Um, but the, the system itself... Uh, propounds that uh, perception by showering the victim with all kinds of positive uh, feedback, affirmation, and support. See, the, right. the scenario is, is the girl makes the claim, and she usually discloses it to someone in a position to report. Uh, it's not unusual for the boy she'll confide in a boyfriend, the boyfriend uh, you know, brings it to the attention of his parents, the parents contact the school resource officer, and the school resource officer notifies the police department, and then the and then the the uh, alleged victim, who's really many times is just trying to almost extort affection from the boyfriend, uh, is now faced with a police interview where uh-huh. what she has said to the boyfriend in confidence is now uh, become a police investigation. And I've never encountered, I tell you, I've been doing these now for 30 years, I've never encountered a case where a teenager said, you know what, I was lying about that. Right, <laughs> yeah. Cause they I made that story. up because my dad, I made that, da- made that up because my dad was a jerk. Yeah. That never right. happened. My dad would never do that. My stepdad would never do that. I've never, never in 30 years, I've never had that instance happen. Yeah. And, so, and actually so, in the, in the uh, possible case that that could happen nobody would believe her anyway no if she I mean, recanted she's in the, she's in the they still think pre- it happened predicament. She, she's made an allegation mm-hmm. in confidence to somebody and now the police are investigating and because of the bent we have toward protecting child victims and believe me uh, let me make this absolutely clear I am I am I know that sexual abuse has happened mm-hmm. uh, you, and, you and I both know it's, it's a horrific crime uh-huh. Uh, it is it is the end of innocence for an innocent victim, and yet you and I both know that false allegations exist. And and you know once the allegation is made, whether it whether it's ever confirmed or not, whether anything ever there happens, whether there's charges filed or not, if if there's no charges filed, that stigma sticks with that father forever. Forever. Because Forever. everybody now knows yeah. that he's uh, was accused of molesting his daughter, right? And you know he's a pariah. He, he's a pariah, 
and and that is not going to change. Well, I you know I don't know what, the way culture is changing these days. Who knows what, what will happen? But, but as it stands right now, he's a pariah. He's his he's tainted forever. And I, I think the other thing that I um, but I believe it ha- is in Florida now. I believe it's nationwide. If you are um, convicted of a sex of a sex crime, now you have to register as a sex offender. Oh yeah. And yeah, so, and it's become, and and that is a whole uh, that is a whole other area where we have battled for years uh, because it affects uh, the most basic aspect of a human being's life. Where can I live? Mm-hmm. Right. And I remember I, I I had a case a few years ago in which we had a graphic from the Palm Beach Post, a local paper, that just in the county showed all the areas that were off limits to someone registered as a sex offender, and there was a very, very clear spot on which sex offenders could live. (laughs) Unfortunately, it was the water catchment area. And what is that? A place where we store all our water. It's a huge... Oh, my gosh. Okay. (laughs) It's like a lake. Oh, my gosh. That didn't have some type of restriction. And so we found sex offenders grouped in communities, almost like leper colonies. Right. Because there were only certain places where yeah. they could be, yeah. and we had a we had a client who literally sat sat he he took a lawn chair and slept in the probation office parking lot mm-hmm. because he could not find a place to live. He slept there for two or three nights before we they finally got a place for him to go. Yeah, we had one in California. They actually set up a place for him in the prison yard. Yeah, because there was no place for him to go. Yeah. yeah. No, it's horrific. So, okay, so you get a case. Um, you you meet with a client. You review all the documents, the discovery that comes from, that you get, that the police have gathered that comes through the district attorney, the prosecuting attorney. And right. then, then where do you take it from there? Well, then we start our action plan. And that really is a matter of developing a timeline, identifying witnesses to talk to, and then conducting the interviews. And those are the areas where we really spend most of our time. Uh, the timeline uh, with the client helps us develop locations, addresses, um, instances, uh, birthdays, etc. key events that, uh, in addition to the uh, dates of allegation, because a lot of times, as you know, these cases, they'll just say, well, it happened in the summer of, you know, 2012. Oh, yeah, uh, or they no gives a, it gives a two- or three-year range that it could have happened oh, yeah. any time. It could have happened, and, they, and they'll, it, it happened all the time. I mean, it's never just like a specific event. It's all, it happened all the time. You raped me all the time. He had, you know, he made me do this all the time, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So we have to narrow down the timeline, and that's usually where we find the biggest gaps in the uh, That's where we drive the uh, defense through. We drive them through these holes in the timeline. Then identifying the witness, and we can talk about that probably later on here, how to identify the witnesses, because I think social media has really exploded the potential for that. Uh, and finally, the witness interviews themselves. Uh, and those are the areas where we concentrate most of our time and energy. Well, and, and I think what you said about the timeline is really important because um, when it, it seems like, anyway, from my perspective, that when uh, the charge is made and the police take on the case, that sometimes the uh, timeline or the allegations made by the child is not are not confirmed. Say it happened in a certain place at a certain time, and 
the girl maybe was away at camp or maybe she was yeah. on a trip or or wasn't living at that address at the time or whatever the situation is. Sometimes those those things aren't ferreted out by law enforcement. No, they're not because law enforcement is and they're in the model of believing the client and because she she couldn't possibly be lying. Right. And, and you know as well as I do that if you say uh, it happened on Alamanda, at Alamanda Avenue on my 14th birthday and you as the investigator go out and develop the fact that they lost that lease the year before and they were actually living on um, Delaware Drive and for her 14th birthday they took her to Disney World and by the way here's a picture with a date on it with Mickey wrapped around her shoulders uh-huh. well you've got you've got evidence uh-huh. that's very yeah. helpful and sometimes because of our because we document everything now for Instagram and everything else we've got right. pictures of where we are yeah so it's yeah. become a huge boon for us yeah no, that's really true, and and uh, of course that that very that very information is what's broken a lot of cases of, uh, from the defense viewpoint. Um, because it's because, because it's 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 portrayed the victim as unreliable. Mm-hmm. Now, let yeah. me let me make this. I know we're moving towards a break, but the oftentimes because the child is already sexually active, because the adolescent is already sexually active, there will be mm-hmm. no physical evidence. Right. Of penetration. Exactly. So the, poli- the police have lost that. They've lost that element because a child that says she's never had any sexual relations and there's no evidence thereof, if she, if she has certain physical evidence, clearly there's been an incident. Right, right. But since so many of these girls are romantically involved with somebody else, that isn't, that isn't available, and so consequently the complexity is compounded. Exactly right. Okay, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. You're listening to P.I. Mark Murnan. He ferrets out the truth. When there's a claim of sexual abuse, you know, I'm I'm just thinking, Mark. Um, you know, back about the timeline we were talking about. 
you know, if you sometimes if you go to these locations where um, the allegation of sexual abuse happened, you'll find out that it it isn't even physically possible. Like, for instance, I'm just thinking of a case a long time ago that I was involved in, um, and the girl claimed it happened in the bathroom at where she worked. Well, the bathroom was uh, hardly big enough to turn around in. <laughs> Much less a closet, a little water closet. Abuse going. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's so, that's true. That's true, Francie. And so, going to the physical locations and documenting their, uh, documenting the dates that they reside there. This is where the client can be so helpful. Uh, because he's an adult and he knows when leases expire and, and when people move. Uh, sometimes you'll even have a situation where the husband and where the father and the mother are both uh, supporting the uh, supporting the defendant, the father, uh, and that can be immeasurably helpful because uh, the father cannot be in the house. Uh, so the mother is, can gather records and leases and, and contracts and service arrangements. And, and this is the kind of paperwork you develop to fill in the timeline. Mm-hmm. The kids just make things up. The teenagers we're talking about, they, they'll, they'll make up things, they'll make up dates. They'll, they remember key events like birthday parties or trips or things. And so they'll dovetail allegations, false allegations, along uh, the limited knowledge that they have. Uh, but the client and the and sometimes the mother can be so helpful in, in pinning down specific events. Right, and and you know I I want to uh, also mention I mean we've been talking about teenage girls, but mm-hmm. a lot of these same scenarios exist with younger children as well, when maybe the child uh, may have made a statement that was misinterpreted, or there's right. some kind of motive by uh, a in custody parent or uh, somebody else in the family, where the allegations also can't be supported by medical means. There's Correct. no evidence, really. There's just a, there's a statement that is could be in, interpreted a number of ways. Yeah, and because the, because the statements are oftentimes ambiguous, they are interpreted according to the listener's presuppositions. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a fancy way of saying you hear what you want to hear. Yeah, And if you're a police officer, now I think that this goes again to comment towards the training of law enforcement officers who are tasked with investigating these types of crimes. And, and typically you'll find, you'll find the larger agencies will have um, sent their investigators to specific classes where this type of material is discussed. I'm looking at a at a text from Deborah Poole and Michael Lamb called Investigative Interviews of Children. Now, this was published probably about 15, 20 years ago by the American, the APA, American Psychological Association, but talks about some of the nuanced methods of talking to children without leading them. Mm-hmm. And, and, and many of the investigators I've, I've worked with in the past are very skilled in this type of thing. They do have, I think I said this before, almost a social worker mentality. Right. Uh, and certainly some of the attorneys in the uh, what we call CAC, the Crimes Against Children units at the uh, prosecutor's offices, they have taken these courses as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but in smaller agencies, uh, and particularly one of the cases I recall, the, the lead detective uh, who conducted the, quote, investigation um, had spent eight hours of training on the AR-15 and one hour in a course called Juvenile Interviews. Wow. So, and this is in a municipality where, a very large municipality, but the police department simply didn't have the resources to have 
officers dedicated, investigators dedicated to this specific type of offense. So and this you're is, right. You know, I mean, and this is one of the most uh, complicated investigations you can ever do. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it, it goes through all of the different uh, uh, scenarios you could possibly imagine. We talked briefly on the break about little children. I mean, there's a method of doing that. And, and I think the problems that I've encountered in the past, I, I remember one case in which uh, it was a foster home. And the child had been through a series of foster homes, and there was evidence that in those previous foster homes there had been specific incidents of abuse. But because it's the foster care system, they're obligated to investigate these. And these are actually parents I know personally who had taken a number of adopted uh, foster children into their home. Uh, And one of the children was making the most wild and absurd allegations. But... There was no evidence that anything had ever taken place. There was no physical evidence. And, you know, they've urinated in my mouth, blah, 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 and just making these wild, unsubstantiated statements. Well, Mm -hmm. that's the kind of thing that unless you have some discernment as an investigator, you might say, oh, man, that's bad. No child would make up this. Let's file charges. Well, and and I have to tell you, I I think I always find it interesting that when when you get a case like this and you're reading the case, even... Even though we know, you and I know this, when you're reading the case, you're going, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this happened, until you, until you get through it and then start tearing it apart, and then you read, right. oh, this can't possibly be true. <laughs> the first read, the first read is so, you got to brace yourself for that first read, don't you? Exactly. You go through and say, oh, man, that's really bad, oh, oh, how are we going to overcome that? And then you start putting it together, you realize, that's nothing but, it, it's smoke and mirrors. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, thirteen-year-old has this kind of recall. No, fourteen-year-old is this involved. And again, children cases, you have to, you have to, you have to watch minutely. You have to watch the um, the interviews of the children, mm-hmm. and you have to, you have to. And as you said, as you mentioned previously, someone, someone on the third interview. Yeah, uh, a child makes some uh, makes a statement, but she's really just affirming what's been mm-hmm. what's been repeated to her twice before. Exactly, exactly. So you have to document each and every occasion that the child has been interviewed, not just by law enforcement, but right. by the parent, right. and then by a social worker, DC uh, Department of Children and Family social worker, then perhaps a school resource officer, and then law enforcement. So literally, by the time you've seen the videotape. The child could have been interviewed anywhere from one to five times. Mm-hmm. That's exactly true. And yeah. it's, it's frightening. Yeah. So, so you start out, um, you, you, you create a timeline. You try mm-hmm. to uh, verify the timeline or not, verify yeah. the um, locations or not, right. document all that, and then you get all that done before you start your interviews? Correct. Okay. And, and then so, the fun begins. Then, then the, the fun, fun begins. begins. Because now, okay. now you've got to identify all the people. And, and, and Carol shared this with me years ago, and I still share it in my seminars, is that, is that you develop witnesses in what we call concentric circles. You identify those people, boyfriends, girlfriends, uh, family members, close relatives. That's the inner circle. Okay? Those are the ones that are close, the most closely aligned with the alleged victim. Mm-hmm. And then you work out from there. You identify uh, classmates or uh, uh, people on athletic teams that they've worked with, maybe a coach of an athletic team, um, and you're working yourself outward to those people who are on the periphery of her sphere of influence. 
And the goal is to start working from outside to inside. And what you're doing essentially by using this technique, uh, this investigative procedure, is to really uh, allow word to get back to the alleged victim that interviews are being conducted and she's going to be held accountable for what she says. Mm-hmm. And to me, this was really the key to unlocking a lot of these cases because what, what happened was if I just knocked it, for instance, I identify a, a former soccer coach, okay? Right. Uh, and this former soccer coach is the father of, uh, of, a, you know, of an associate of the alleged victim. Well, just by knocking on the door and having a two-minute conversation uh, with the uh, soccer coach, um, I'll say, my name is Mark Manan, I'm an investigator, but this and so, these allegations are made. Do you mind if I speak to you privately about this and so? And oftentimes they say, I really don't have anything to say, shut the door. Mm-hmm. But the seed is planted because mm-hmm. the father will then communicate with the daughter and the daughter will then communicate with the alleged victim that someone's asking questions. Right. And by constantly going to these doors to talk to these people and working from the outside in, by the time you get to one of her close friends, they already know what you're there for. Right. And I never asked to speak to a child, and another adolescent. In other words, if the, if the alleged victim is 13, 14 years old, I don't want to talk to her girlfriends. I want to talk to her girlfriend's parents. Mm-hmm. Because Good her girlfriend's point. parents are a lot more attuned to what the victim is really like than her friends are. Does that make sense? That total makes, totally makes sense. Because they're, they're the parents. They're already a little leery about the, the alleged victim anyway. This is just compounding that. And I have gotten priceless information from the parents of close friends of the victim that I would never get by talking to the teenagers. Mm-hmm. But I, my, so my goal, and I usually take Wendy with me. Wendy's my wife. Uh, she is a, um, uh, also a uh, licensed private investigator, a certified paralegal, very, very good at interviews and gathering records. So she and I will go as a couple to these homes, and it's been a great asset to us because um, a guy walking up to a house on investigating uh, uh, juvenile offenses can be, can be misinterpreted or seem a little... Um, uh, seem a little pushy, but a couple walking up, a man and a woman dressed professionally, asking questions, oftentimes we're invited in, sit at the table, can you get a cup of coffee, and we're having a real conversation. So they have been incredibly helpful in establishing credibility issues with the alleged victim. And, well, that's, uh, a, that's I, a great technique too, Mark. Um, not everybody has that ability to do that, but a great technique because that makes... Uh, I, I guess what it does is it gives stability to the investigation. The fact yeah. that it's a couple, a married couple, coming right. to talk to you um, yeah. somehow changes the dynamics of the it, investigation. It, yeah, it's really dramatic. And, and again, um, Wendy is much better, much better taking notes. And even if it's not, even if it's a male and female, because police officers often work as teams, and sometimes you'll have a male view. Just having a female presence or a male presence, sometimes it's just better for Wendy to conduct the interview and me to be there. We have to kind of play that by ear. Uh, but just having a couple there uh, rather than, you know, two beefy guys wearing, you know, thin neckties, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's, it's just a different dynamic. Okay. Now, I'll, I'll tell you we this. To, I, I know we're coming towards a break, but let me... Yeah. Facebook and Instagram and Twitter have blown this whole aspect of these concentric circles out of the water. They are a treasure trove of information. Well, 
Let's talk about that when we come back. More to come with Florida PI, Mark Bernan. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm back with my guest, Mark Murnan. And, Mark, I was just... Uh thinking uh, as I was waiting for the for, to come back on the air is that it's a great tip to talk about talking to the parents of the of the girlfriends and male friends as well of yeah. the complaining witness that is yeah. that is a great tip because I think that typically investigators may not think about doing that you think about interviewing the witnesses Right. I uh, think about in interviewing recipient witnesses as well as character witnesses, but I'm not sure that people always think about interviewing those those second tier people. Well, and we found those to be highly valuable because because of the effect that it has principally on the complaining witness. Uh-huh. Um, they they they've oftentimes made uh, statements to their girlfriends or boyfriends, uh, uh, their friends about uh, circumstances at home. Um, that wouldn't necessarily work its way into a police report and wouldn't be available in deposition. Mm-hmm. So it really is, it really is a two-pronged, uh, uh, two-pronged strategy. Number one, we want to, we want to let the victim, we want to let the alleged victim know that we're investigating. And number two, to develop collateral issues of credibility that the uh, attorney may be able to utilize, uh, during deposition. Uh, and so that course- is a, that was a very effective strategy. Yeah, and of course, that's where the social media comes in because uh, although I think it's changing a little bit, people are maybe being a little bit more cautious about what they put up, but but what kids put up, what teenagers put up on on Facebook and, and some of these social oh, yeah. media sites is amazing. 
Well, and this is, I'm looking at a couple of them here that, of recent ones that we've worked at. Instagram accounts, iPhoneagram, uh, Facebook accounts. Uh, you know, you can download Twitter, uh, um, a, uh, a person's Twitter account. You can just download a copy and paste it into an Excel spreadsheet. Uh, it, it, there is a plethora, uh, a smorgasbord of information that's available through these. And we've often identified those second-tier witnesses through the social media accounts that they have. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's something, it's something that just occurred to me a moment ago. It, we, let's briefly, maybe we should close out just talking about the ethics of conducting these types of investigations. Absolutely. Good, good thinking, Mark. Because these are, these are fraught with potential liability for the investigator. And I'm thinking specifically of, the, uh, of two things. Number one, misrepresentation, mm-hmm. uh, where you are, uh, whether intentionally or unintentionally, perceived as being a law enforcement officer by contacting some of these witnesses. Right. Um, and this has to be, this is, this is a potential um, uh, landmine, not just for you as the investigator, but for the case itself. Well, uh, you, you do have to be really clear because often people make an assumption that correct. you're law enforcement, even, even if when you told them differently. Correct. And, and I even went early on, I even went to the extent of designing a, uh, a very graphic business card uh, it's got a logo on it. It's multicolored. It's plaited on the back. It's got our website address on. And it would number one because I'm a bit of a show off and I'm marketing all the time. So here's my flashy <laughs> card. But it would be impossible to take my business card and mistake it for a cop's yeah. card. Mm-hmm. You know those plain white embossed little shield on it. Right. So I, I'm often I'm often um, uh, troubled by investigators who have very simple white card. They they make it look semi official. Not realizing that that is, you know, they're, they're, they're potentially creating problems for themselves because if there is a misconception, it isn't going to go toward the witness's credibility. It's going to go toward the investigator. Exactly right. And so making sure that everybody, and so I, I mean, I develop a bit of a pattern, and I, I've learned this obviously from uh, other investigators in the National Association of Legal Investigators. You and I are both involved in that. Uh, excellent caliber of investigators nationally, internationally. And one of the tips I learned was I'm here on behalf of the attorney representing so and so who has asked me to come out and speak to you about this particular circumstance. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have a few moments to speak with me? Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is don't dress like a cop. I wear, you know, polos and, uh, polos and slacks. I'm, I'm looking more like a, you know, an out of work golfer than I do a cop. Yeah, there you um, go. But doing everything we can to, uh, not misrepresent who we represent, why we're there and the intentions of our interviews. Mm-hmm. So I drill that home during the first, and before I leave, I make sure that they understand who we are and why we were there. Yeah. Um, now, this also spreads to social media mm-hmm. because any savvy investigator who is conducting these types of research online uh, has been tempted by going to a seminar of creating a false identity, uh, friending uh, you know, the subject of an investigation, uh, and, and I frankly think that this is, uh, these are ethical uh, challenges which we have to be absolutely crystal clear about before we undertake any type of effort in the information gathering process. Absolutely. And, and besides, the, the social media sites prohibit uh, false representation. Anyway. Correct. So, yeah. And how are you going to get, how are you possibly going to get that in? Right. 
Yeah. You know, there's, we don't, we're, not just inf- we're not developing information just to have it. We're developing with the intent of utilizing it in the course of the defense, which is a, uh, which is a, uh, um, a legal process. Right. So it has to meet the standards of admissibility by the court. Mm-hmm. And you're just, you're, you're just creating, and it's not necessary. Even if, the, even if the information is set to private, even if the privacy settings, and I'll say this to anybody listening, most teenagers are too stupid to set privacy settings on their Facebook account because they want to show off. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you're, you're crazy for doing it, but what on earth are you going to do? You're, you're, you're going to end up almost being charged yourself. You're an adult. Making, <laughs> it, it's right. ludicrous. Yeah, and yet no, you and I, I both know people who engage in that kind of unethical, illegal uh, activity all the time, and it's frightening. Mm-hmm. I agree. And, you know, uh, I don't know, are you required in Florida to identi- identify yourself and tell them who you're working for? Is that a, a legal requirement? Um, I, I don't know that it's a legal requirement. I, I haven't re- researched the statute on that, but I know misrepresentation uh, is always uh, right. Is never appropriate. Well, the reason uh, I'm asking a... is because here in, in California, um, our law requires us to introduce ourselves, tell them who we're working on behalf of, and give them a business card. Okay. All right. And yeah. I don't think we. we don't, well, you're from California, Francie, so everything yeah. like, everything is illegal. <laughs> I know California is different than the rest of the world. Always. <laughs> Yeah. We're waiting for it over here, but it hasn't I, happened yeah. yet. But you know, I thought it would—I thought it would be problematic when I first started out because, yeah, you know, this has been more years than I care to care to say on, on uh, internet radio. But uh, when I first started out, I would in- introduce myself as an investigator, but not go through all of that. Right. And I initially thought it was a, was problematic, but I haven't ever found it be a problem, and it's been in effect probably yeah. now about twenty years. So yeah. Yeah, I never have a problem with it anymore because I would I would just as soon be forthcoming with them. Exactly. I had a witness yesterday who wouldn't talk to me because I was I was representing the plaintiff. Right. And all I do is because I don't want to go in there and get a statement, and then he says, "Well, I thought he was with the defense." I, I don't need that. The attorney doesn't need that. Huh. We'll just set the guy for deposition. It's not a problem. But I think investigators create problems for themselves, thinking they're trying to get thinking they're trying to achieve a specific result. Yeah, exactly, because we're fact-finders. That's all, yeah. period. We're yeah. fact-finders. We gather information. We're the hands and feet and eyes and ears of the attorney. Absolutely. And we go out and gather information, bring it back to the attorney with no axe to grind, and we shouldn't have any axe to grind. No, it's the attorney's job to be the advocate. We yeah. are the fact-finders. Right. Yeah. Man, that's how we, that's, and that gives us peace of mind at night because we don't have to worry about the results of it. We just have to report honestly what people tell us. <laughs> Which is why we're investigators and they're the attorneys. <laughs> Amen, sister. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, Mark, we're almost out of time here. Um, I, I wanted to uh, wrap up with a few things, but we don't even have time to do that. I so much appreciate you being on the show. Um, you're a great guest. And uh, this is uh, this is a... A taught topic that people should be scrutinizing very carefully when they see an allegation. Yeah, that's so, true. Uh, so, just let me say, guests for the upcoming weeks: Lynn Peterson, private investigator from California. What do you know about the people you hire? Mm. Canadian attorney Norman Groot on investment fraud. And then in December, we will once again have the Gift of Exoneration series featuring actual cases of people who have been in prison for crimes they didn't commit. 
So tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining, Mark. Thanks a lot, Francie. Enjoyed it very much. Okay. Take care. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.